Welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. This is the final episode of season two and the final episode of 2018. Today on the show, I'm joined by Tim Ng, a British-born Chinese-American. Now, Tim talks to me a little bit about discovering what it meant to be a British-born Chinese-American and his experience almost as a nomad living in six different countries on three different continents, what that experience has been like and how he's grown from it. He also talks about how to get backstage at rock concerts. So if you're looking for tips, he's your guy. Remember to take five minutes to chat with somebody else about their life, learn a little bit more about them, and come to appreciate them a little bit more. Here's my conversation with Tim. Tim, welcome to My Wax Museum. Um, how, and can you say your last name for us? Yes, my so. last name is rather unusual. It's pronounced mm, mm. just spelled N-G, N for November and G for golf. It's a Cantonese name or a Chinese name from the south of China. Yeah. Um, if you know anything about Chinese history, it's actually one of the three ruling kingdoms of the Romance period. Uh, although, if you read a history book, it's probably spelled W-U. Really? Yes, because that's the Mandarin form of the of, of the family name. Really? So, Wu and... Or, mm. Yeah, mm. so Ng mm is mm. the Cantonese, which is where my father is yeah. from, the south part of China, in, in Canton province. Um, but if, if you go just a little north outside of that uh, geographic region, there are other people with this last name. And uh, they speak Mandarin, which, of hmm. course, is the, the, the national language in, yeah. in China. And that's pronounced Wu. But the, uh, the, the, the character is the same. Interesting. And interestingly, it's one of the few Chinese characters that has um, pretty much no meaning. It's just a noun. It's just a name. But, and it, but it has its own character. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Really? It's right Interesting. there, actually. Which one? Uh, the one on the, the blue one that looks like a man. With yeah, those two yeah. The the one on the top is the traditional character, and the one on the bottom is a simplified character. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's interesting. So that's my last name. It's that's a very different language than than English. It, oh, the way that yeah, it's, it's organized it's, it's and everything. That's right. Yeah. 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 There's no alphabet to it. Um. And yeah. And there's there's hundreds of dialects. Yeah. You can't just tell your kid, "Well, sound it out." Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just have to kind of understand more about the language and, and where it came from in order to really kind of grasp it. That's awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into where your history is from and mm -hmm. stuff. But for now, uh, how do we know each other? So um, it's 2018, the fall of 2018. Uh, we're in Rexburg, Idaho at Brigham Young University, Idaho. You're a student and I work here as both an administrator and as an adjunct faculty for mm -hmm. Foundation Humanities 110. That's the Introduction to Humanities course. And so you uh, have been one of my students this semester. You were my very first university professor there ever. You go. So, yeah. so and and I was very relieved when I got into your class because <laughs> because I'm like this this guy doesn't sound too American. I'm like let's see how this That's goes because right. I'm from Canada, so I was kind of relieved. Certainly unconventional. Yeah, as yeah. a British-born Chinese American, it's yeah. Uh, you tend to have a broader appeal, <laughs> yeah, or at least broader t uh, touching points with most people. I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would say so. So, how, how do you become a, a British-born Chinese American? Well, most of it wasn't uh, any choice of my own. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least the first part. The uh, the British-born. So, my mother is from uh, England, the south of England, um, born uh, in London area, um, and her family goes back you know, several hundreds of years. So mm -hmm. She's a white Caucasian, uh, British thoroughbred, I suppose. Okay, yeah. And my father, as I say, is from the south of China. And again, his family history goes back several thousand years, about two and a half thousand years. Yeah. And so two pretty pure, um, uh, unbroken lines of Chinese and, and British or English Caucasian ancestry. And, and, and so they met and fell in love and in, in the UK. Yeah. And uh, I was the third child of five. So Okay, so you're right in the middle. Yeah, mm -hmm, right in the middle. And so I'm the, uh, that's the British-born Chinese part. The American part is about 10 years ago, coming up to 10 years ago, 
Um, I moved here for college. I came here to Brigham Young University, Idaho. That was your first experience living in the States? Mm, uh, no, not my first. Uh, we did taken several vacations here um, okay. growing up. My, my um, grandparents on my father's side uh, all out, live out in the East Coast in New York and New Jersey area. Oh, okay. So we'd come out to visit them. Uh, and my dad uh, used to work for a financial consulting firm and had had conferences in Florida and other places. So I'd actually been to the U.S. several times mm-hmm. before coming here for college. And then when I served my mission um, for the LDS Church in Hong Kong, I spent three months in the Missionary Training Center learning Cantonese Chinese in Provo, Utah. Hmm. So that was my first kind of long stretch. Yeah. Albeit in... But it was just... Just in the, yeah, in the was, Missionary Training Center. So yeah. I didn't get to go around very much. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it was still a significant taste of life out here in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And uh, but my parents had actually moved here 10 years ago. That's how I ended up coming here to BYU-Idaho. I'd received a scholarship okay. to go to BYU-Hawaii. Yeah. But my parents had just moved out here, and uh, we just kind of all felt it would be better for me to uh, come to this particular university. So I, I landed here, and then um, I met and married my wife just a few months later. She's from Tennessee. Rebecca is. Uh, she, we, were, we were in a math class together, but that's that's the American part of me. And so yeah. she naturalized me <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a legal sense, yeah. and, um, and but in a philosophical sense, I've, I've, I've always felt more American in, in terms of kind of social and political values mm-hmm. than even British, uh, although hmm. in terms of the intellectual history, uh, I do still, still feel um, a lot of patriotism towards what the, the, the British people and British minds have done for uh, Western liberal democracy and thought, uh, you know, the world over. So uh, Hmm. I'm both proud to be British and proud to be American. Yeah. So growing (laughs) up, growing up, did you ever think that you'd end up living over here? Not at all. No. Um, I say uh, England was the motherland. Yeah. And uh, I hadn't even paid much attention to the Chinese part of myself. Really? And so receiving a a call to missionary service in Hong Kong was a complete shock to me. I hadn't even considered that before. Yeah. I didn't speak Chinese at all. I'm um, just by having a father from, from the South of China. And, um, but yeah, so that experience as a missionary really helped me to get in touch with that, um, ethnic side of myself and that yeah. cultural side of myself. Um, and, uh, well, there's a scripture in, Elijah is it that talks about the hearts of fathers turning to the children and vice versa the children to the fathers and yeah and, and my time as a missionary in Hong Kong really did kind of um, kindle that fire of uh, of of intimacy or, or af- uh, affinity towards that Chinese part of myself yeah and were you so when you first got your call when you first found mm-hmm. out you'd be going yes. to China mm-hmm. were you excited oh absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I'd um, so we, we'd always traveled a lot as, as a family. We, we lived close, you know, in the south of England and, and went to France several times for vacations. And mm-hmm. We've been here to the United States, uh, you know, other areas of the world just for a week or two at a time vacationing with family um, or visiting family. But I'd never been in a foreign country living by myself for a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. And so my missionary service was, re- you know, for a two-year period was quite significant and then, you know, since then, I've it's it's been very easy to adapt to new environments and yeah, and move move along and move around. But do you think um, is that kind of where your nomadic roots come from? Where I think, well, I'd say there's there's a there's a, a, a heritage of that in terms mm-hmm. of my dad's immigration trail. Um, he was born in South of China, but at the time it was under uh, communist rule and the Great Leap Forward, which was really a huge leap backwards. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> kind of forced his family out of South China. They tried to escape famine and and, and ended up in Hong Kong, which is, of course, at the time was, under was British rule. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and then they they stayed there for several years and, and later on moved to the UK and the US. Um, but uh, yeah, so there was there was that cultural heritage of of movement. Yeah, um, for both social, political, and economic uh, progression. Um, but yeah, so when I actually landed in Hong Kong and, and found my feet there, you know, over the next couple of years, um, that really did start to expand the world of possibility mm-hmm. in terms of, you know what, Tim, you could make it anywhere in the world. You've just learned two languages, Cantonese and Mandarin, and yeah. and figured your way around pretty competently. 
you know, you could do it. Where do you want to go? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And growing up, did you have, um, when you were younger, mm-hmm. did you have any experiences where you kind of started to feel like that, that you would go out and kind of maybe have a bit of an adventurous spirit, mm. try new things? Yeah, well, uh, probably in my teenage years more than um, my youthful years even though i actually did more traveling uh you know before puberty than yeah than through my teen years um uh, i think so interestingly uh, there are two movies that were really highly influential in my teenage years and still are today one is catch me if you can that's a good talking one about yeah. frank abagnale mm-hmm. um who later on was working for the fbi just retired from the fbi actually and when yeah. i was working at google he um came and gave a talk there one of the best talks I've ever that's awesome to, yeah so that that movie itself the one with leonardo dicaprio was was really inspiring in the sense that wow this teenage boy just gallivanted you know halfway well the whole way across the world several times yeah um just by social engineering <laughs> yeah yeah he just fooled people that's along right, yeah. and 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 i figured hey why can't i do that too yeah and, and so there, there were um stories of my teenage years where I, I you know I took my way backstage with uh, Def Leppard, Deep Purple, a whole bunch of Are you things. serious? Oh for real, that's right. And either one of these could be a podcast yeah. interview of its own, but you know, I, I, I learned to do that. Yeah. Um and so that was pretty inspiring. And the the other movie was Wayne's World or the Wayne's World mm-hmm. one and two. Yeah. Um and, and, and that actually plays in a, a little bit to the love of, of, of rock bands and kind of um softcore partying i suppose yeah yeah <laughs> uh, you know there's that scene of course or in, in both movies where um uh wayne and garth they approach uh, alice cooper and then aerosmith and the other and, and backstage and yeah and they, they, they try and mingle there and 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 just seeing their kind of lust for life and living in the now and and, and enjoying the moment um and, and just kind of being audacious and trying to live your dreams yeah uh, that along with catch me if you can, catch me if you can. They, they inspired me to think, hey, well, why not? Yeah. That was kind of like the theme of my teenage years was why not, and and so being able to expand upon that as a missionary and and find some kind of um, more existential meaning for approaching life. Yeah. Uh, you know, after I'd completed that service and landed here in college, and then I thought, hey, the world really is my oyster. And why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Okay. I'm curious, okay, how do you get backstage at a rock concert? Okay, so the first, uh, the way that this happened, the first rock concert I ever went to, mm-hmm. uh, I was about 16 years old, it's in the south of England in Plymouth, which was my hometown at the time. Um, there was a band called Ocean Color Scene. They're not very big globally, but they were a pretty uh, big band in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the first concert that I got tickets to see. And I was in a surf shop. Um, we lived on the south coast, and so there was a lot of the decent surf scene down there. I was in a surf shop about the week before, and I had overheard um, either a customer or a, um, a, a retail worker talking about how their uncle or cousin worked in the security at the, uh, at the event center. And they were saying that, oh, the bands always come in at 2 o'clock for their sound check. That's just kind of part of the... Part of the gig, the gig, yeah, routine. That's right. Yeah, and so, uh, and the, and they, I, I just remembered this piece of information. Yeah, and I thought, hey, you know what? What am I doing next weekend at the gig at two o'clock? And yeah, I was like, well, I don't have any class. You know, I was in um, college at the time, as we call it. It was like post high school, um, pre university studies. Okay, and uh, yeah, and so I was like, well, why don't I turn up back? You know, kind of in in the. Um, bus loading area at yeah. two o'clock and just see what happens so i did that uh with a friend of mine and sure enough at two o'clock the tour bus comes all of the band get out yeah and there was some kind of security guard there that said okay who's here for the sound check and he was speaking to all the journalists that were outside right and i was looking around and they're all saying me 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 and then and they get these passes and so I said, oh, I'm here for the two o'clock sound check. Yeah. And so they gave us these little wristbands. And Are you got serious? It. That's right. That's awesome. And so we were just mingling with kind of the local radio station hosts and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. We saw the sound check, which was just really unique experience. To yeah. See. For my first, I hadn't even seen the concert yet. Yeah. And, and anyhow, um, afterwards they came down and they signed a bunch of stuff. But for one of the um, uh, 
uh, one of the uh, the tracks that they were doing the soundtrack for, they use a whistle, just hmm. kind of a, a referee's whistle, okay, as, as part of the song, and their whistle wasn't working, so they threw it out, and I caught it. I was like, "Wow, sweet!" That's awesome. <laughs> but then they said, "Ah, you, you should probably give that back. Actually, I mean, we'll, we'll fix it up and see if we can use it." Mm-hmm. And this really cheeky part of me thought, "No, you, it's in your hands. You can control." The yeah, situation. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I said to the band manager, "No, I'm not going to give it back." I said, "How about this?" I said, "This clearly isn't working properly. How about I go?" I said, "You guys don't have have time. You don't know this city. You don't know how to get another whistle. If I come back with a whistle, what will you give me?" And he, he kind of looked at me. He was like, wow, this is pretty interesting. But he was like, at the same time, that's a great offer. Yeah. Like, well, how about backstage passes for you and all your buddies? <laughs> that's awesome. So I said, job done. I'll be back in 30 minutes. Yeah. So sure enough, I ran out. I went to the local sports store, got a couple of whistles for like five bucks. That's And then great. came back. And sure enough, he gave me and my friends backstage passes. And and we met the band afterwards. And then how that happened a month later for Def Leppard is I just kind of laminated this pass. Yeah. Did the same thing, two o'clock, and just kind of, I, I, I just, walked in confidently as, yeah. oh, this is my backstage pass. Yeah. And I uh, saw the guys back in the green room before the show started. And, well, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened as well, but that's... <laughs> that's fantastic. That's how I did it. <laughs> so... So walking confidently, yes. saying why, why not, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, and and just, I guess, giving an original mm-hmm. idea. What kind of other experiences? As you've, I mean, started with with getting into rock concerts, mm-hmm. and then you know uh, you go on your mission and have this realization that you know I can do whatever. I just learned two languages, sure. right? Mm-hmm. And and then uh, now, then you come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. where you start studying and stuff. How did you start applying that kind of philosophy and that idea more so in your life as you got further into adulthood? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's a lot of people talk about the law of attraction, right? The secret or whatever. Yeah. And, and essentially, and and, and um, you know, the the underlying characteristic of that whole ethos is. If you think it, if you kind of spiritually create something, then that's what you will project kind of mm-hmm. naturally. And that's true. You know, if, 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 if we have an optimistic attitude, if, we're, um, if, if we have things we want to achieve, if we're paying attention in life, then, uh, then, and, and if we're driven, we have some kind of goal mm-hmm. uh, or just a, a hope even, um, then people can people pick up on that. You know, yeah. we, we, life is suffering. We live in a world of all sorts of, uh, decay and chaos, and and if we let the um, the failures or the the injustices in life kind of um, overwhelm us, then uh, well, then we've been beaten. Yeah, you know, M- Mother Nature has won. Mm-hmm. But we aren't just nature; we are nature and God divine. We're, we're we we live at the intersection of both these forces: the the, the centripetal and the centrifugal. The, the the, the, the order and the chaos. And as humans, we have this amazing opportunity to kind of uh, overcome one with the other. And so anytime we, we express that kind of, you know, faith is an inherently optimistic um, posture. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so this is why the spiritual life is so important for many people around the world is that that is the thing that gives hope and energy um, to the otherwise dystopian world that we live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if you project any kind of, uh, just a modicum of positivity and hope, people are very attracted to that. And so here I am in college. Uh, I'm here with a purpose. I'm engaged. I want to do things with my life. I don't know quite what, but mm-hmm. I just know that I have potential and people have needs and there's some way in which I can serve somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and throughout the getting an education, hopefully I'll be able to expand the influence uh, and the service that I can give at some point to someone or a group of people in the future. So that's my mindset mm-hmm. um, at college. And as you do that, well, you're the kind of person that an instructor will really gravitate towards. And I see that, you know, in, in our class, is, 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 there's a couple of students that really kind of uh, jump out. And you're one of them, you know, you, you're engaged in the, con- the conversation and yeah. the discussion. You're thinking deeply. 
you're not just saying, how do I complete this assignment? You're thinking, how do I let this change me to become a better person? Right. And well, and so you start to give more attention to these individuals. And that's exactly what happened to me. I had a professor that um, was doing a research project and they weren't able to make this conference that they were going to. So they said, hey, Tim, why don't you um, uh, write this paper for me and kind of present this paper? And that was my journey into kind of uh, high level academic performance. Yeah where I, you know, I ended up by the end of my college career publishing in a national journal and going to three or four different uh, graduate level conferences, presenting papers and traveling around the country to do that as hmm. well. And, uh, and, and from that, you know, that strong academic performance then uh, was a, uh, a jumping point for graduate school mm -hmm. and the corporate world. Mm -hmm. and, and those were pretty unique experiences as well. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you've told us in class before mm -hmm. that you everything that you've done, mm -hmm. you haven't really done it in the traditional way. Not Every way all. that you've yeah. uh, advanced onto the next thing, mm -hmm. it hasn't been traditional at right. all. Yeah, and so uh, I mean, to at a at a, a university where you're just working on your undergrad, mm -hmm. and you're you know published in a national mm -hmm. uh, magazine or print journal, journal, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, and attending these conferences and mm -hmm. stuff, that's pretty unique it for is. an undergrad for an student. Undergrad, yeah, and, and, right? say, and, and, and you get that kind of attention from uh, faculty mentors here at Brigham Young University, Idaho, that you don't at a lot of universities, mm -hmm. you know, very high-level universities. Yeah, I mean, my biggest mm -hmm. class this semester was History 101, right. and that was 80 students. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's almost a, that's, unheard of on this campus is to have an 80-student class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and compared to other universities, right, yeah. mm -hmm. that's tiny class, exactly, yeah, right? Exactly, pretty, pretty, pretty uh, and, and so it, it definitely is a unique experience. So mm -hmm. you definitely took oh, advantage of that. Definitely, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why I tell students all the time is find mentors, yeah. whether they're in the administration or faculty, and and uh, earn their time. Mm -hmm. Because they want to give it to you. Um, there's still you know resource limits, but it's a case of you have that opportunity, just take it. Yeah, yeah, make use of it. Mm -hmm. So so you did that. You worked um all the way through your undergrad mm -hmm. to get there. And what was your undergrad in? What was your um, degree? It was International Studies. So that was the name of the major. Um, I had a, an emphasis in political science. And so that made up a, a secondary core of classes. Mm -hmm. And then I did uh, double minors in Chinese language and multilingual studies. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So you learned a lot. I did, yes. Studied a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then what did it look like after that? What what Ooh, did you go on to do? A whole bunch of different things. And my first uh, kind of major full-time job after graduation was here at the university. Mm -hmm. um, I worked for the Pathway uh, program, uh, which originated here at BYU-Idaho and has recently, in the last couple of years, spun off to its own uh, educational institution based down in Salt Lake. They call it a BYU Pathway Worldwide. Yep. So I was the manager for the Speaking Partners program, um, and at a time where we were just kind of really starting starting to um, globalize and and grow the program in significant ways and so i was called in for that seven month period before i went to graduate school to just kind of help scale um, the platforms and the the structure of that um, particular program hmm. mm -hmm. so that would have been a pretty unique experience it was and i having done that program mm -hmm. and helped with that yeah. um, as a student yeah uh, it's, I mean, it, it works fine. I think it went well. Yeah, yeah. You know. And, and uh, as I say this, you know, any kind of curriculum and any kind of scale, scale, the scaling of global education programs is a highly complex uh, task. Yeah. And, and, and so to be a part of that was both a privilege, but a great insight as to, uh, you know, how does bureaucracy work? How, how does... Um, who are the different stakeholders yeah. in a complex project like this? Yeah, and uh, yeah, it gave great insight for everything else that was to come afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and I'd say that you know today you go down to Salt Lake City, the uh, BYU Pathway Worldwide offices, and um, there's really some incredible things going on in um, the LES Church educational system yeah. around the world. It's blessing a lot of people's lives. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's not a perfect. That there is no such thing as a as a perfect um educational program no no um but uh as far as things go given the uh, few resources that have been committed to it it is it is a miracle it's impressive it is a miracle. it is really yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. so 
why did they why did they call you in to do that then well um it i it was a job that i had applied for but the pretext to this and and this is great tips for anybody trying to get a job is to 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 be known amongst the people that you want to get hired by yeah and so for two years as an undergraduate i had worked in the curriculum development department the online curriculum development department uh, building these pathway courses and so i was there at the very beginning before pathway even existed creating online content Hmm. Um, and i was given great i had great administrators that worked with me curriculum designers that gave me full autonomy over um i think it was like the one of the math 108 or uh, 106 or 106 something classes, yeah, exactly yeah. That. and i partnered with uh, keith pullman who's down at the lds business college to create this course okay I, so i basically as a uh, freshman student created this course really online uh, with very little oversight and um and, and that got me started off on to understanding how curriculum works and pedagogy yeah. um so i i'd done that for two years and proved myself there uh, I, later on, I, I became an online TA, and so I, again, I knew more about the the, the uh, faculty administration of online right. courses. And then, for my f- uh, senior capstone project in international studies, I'd done um, essentially a, a pro bono consulting project for the Pathway program, looking at accreditation in Brazil, Mexico, and one, and the United Kingdom. Hmm. And uh, I handed that report in, and it was so good that you know, once I applied for this role that was open. Um, it was pretty easy for them to say, hey, we worked with this guy before, we should bring him in. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it turns out now that that report turned into something significant because I think Pathway's largest international um, uh, country is for, for um, students is Brazil. Really? So, um, yeah. It was, it's really cool to have seen my, uh, my efforts just kind of come into fruition in, in so many different ways. Yeah. Just by being an engaged student. And that's... That's something a lot of students have no idea that they can make an impact as a student yeah. to the trajectory of thousands of people's lives yeah. just by being engaged. That's awesome. That's really cool. And then, so after that seven months, you said yeah. you were working mm-hmm. on that mm-hmm. and then um, and then you went straight into graduate school after that? Correct, yeah. Um, and again, that's a whole, di- I wasn't even originally thinking of going to graduate school as an undergraduate was not even on the radar. Really? I didn't know what graduate school was. So why'd <laughs> so you it, end up? It was, it was um, well, I, I had had, um, at the time, my goal was to work for the U.S. State Department as a foreign diplomat. Okay. I couldn't do that because I, I was not yet a U.S. citizen. Right. So I had to wait until I was graduated and, and then... I was able to naturalize a few months later. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, um, I was thinking, how do I achieve this goal and build a, 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 a career in the foreign service? I, I kind of wanted to, to be a, the Secretary of State or something yeah. <laughs> for the U.S., like Henry Kissinger or Madeleine Albright, who were not born in the U.S. but naturalized and later became. Anyhow, and so I thought, well, uh, military experience is usually a good thing. Yeah. And so I was like, you know, and at the time, we're kind of winding down our wars, which is a good thing, but... Uh, with whenever you wind down war, you also wind down the number of officers that you're trying to recruit. Right. And I figured out, well, if I want to have a fair stab at this, I should probably try and become an officer in the military. And so it gave me three options. That was to either go in as, as a medical doctor, as a lawyer, or a chaplain. And okay. the first two didn't really interest me too much. That was way too much schooling and, yeah. <laughs> and times. I thought, well, hey, why not, why not become a chaplain? Huh. So in order to do that, I had to go get a, uh, uh, a theological degree. Um, and there's not many people that, not many places that award those. Yeah. I essentially just stumbled across Yale Divinity School. Yeah. And, uh, well, I applied and they gave me a full tuition scholarship. And so I went. Really? <laughs> yeah. And so while I was at graduate school, I enrolled in the chaplain candidacy program with the US Air Force Reserves. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's how that all started. So you really only wound up going to graduate school mm-hmm. because you wanted to be a chaplain. Well, in because the military. not even that, I just or you wanted to, to be military experience. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. To supplement. That's a long. That's a long train to go and try and would, get yeah. mm-hmm. military experience. That's right. But I realized that as a non-native or non-U.S. born citizen, that it's pretty. You've got to make the case for yourself. Yeah, you really have mm-hmm. to make it worth their that's while. Right, yeah, and so. Uh, and it, you know, the stakes are pretty high as an officer in the military. Yeah. So I thought, well, let's 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 prove myself there, which I yeah. did, you know. Yeah. And um, and and so that's that's kind of how I ended up at graduate school. Um, but you know, I'd say I've always been a good student, and I've always tried to find meaning in education. 
rather than just have it be a transactional thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so that worked out really well. Yeah. And, and my wife ended up going to graduate school as well at the same time as me, which was, again, unplanned. Yeah. But has been a great blessing in, in both of our lives and our family's life as a result. So, yeah. I think the, the key thing is to just have aspirations, to have plans. And then, uh, you know, when, when either the Lord or life gives you an opportunity to take it. Yeah. And that's essentially been my, my mode of being is just keep trudging along uh, a given path. And uh, when something better comes along, just jump on it. Why not? Uh, right. Why not? Exactly. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So how long, how long was graduate school for you then? Uh, it was originally meant to be three years. And then yeah. after a year in the Air Force Reserves, I realized that kind of government work was not actually what I wanted to do. And but, you know, so you gave up on I, that, that whole. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a great educational experience, but I yeah. realized that this was not truly me. I didn't really want to be secretary of state. So now you were just on a tangent, but right. still learning and benefiting. But exactly. And I thought, but, okay, so what does one do with a uh, master's degree in religion and philosophy? And, yeah. And um and uh, well, and, and, and that's when the world of higher education really became kind of the goal for me. And huh. reflecting upon my college experience and working in Pathway, I, I kind of figured out that's where I want to be and that's what I want to do. That's where I'll make a difference in the world. Is in education. That, right, not politics. That's <laughs> interesting. That's interesting that you kind of yeah. were going that way yeah. and then because and of the say, school I, you had I, to take. I had interviewed with all of the government agencies that were, I was interested and were interested in me. Yeah. I was at Yale. Yeah. And, um, and I was with very high, highly powerful people during that time. Um, but it just did not seem right. It did not seem me. Hmm. And, and sure, I had the, 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 the competency to go all the way. Yeah. Um, but doing something merely because you can do it is not a good enough reason to do anything. Yeah. Um, there has to be some kind of mission and purpose and, and uh, vitality and, and love for something. And, and my love for education was greater than my love for the game of politics. Hmm. And so... Which and I never wanted to go into politics. I wanted to go you into wanted government. To, yeah. Which is, again, more of a philosophical kind of... You wanted to be hired into right. bureaucracy rather than elected into exactly, it, basically. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But even then, you know, having navigated even just the Air Force's bureaucracy, I was like, ah, you know, like, maybe I'm not. not patient enough for this, you know. The, yeah. the whole military ethos of hurry up and wait, you know, it's not satisfactory for me. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hurry up and do. So, <laughs> so, then, so then after after finishing school... Did you mm -hmm. spend some, you got your military experience, yes, right, yep, that, mm -hmm. that you wanted? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and then and then, what was after that? Well, uh, a friend of mine uh, at, from Brigham Young University, Idaho, who I never yeah. worked directly with, but we were in the same program and uh, knew each other from um, working kind of aside each other in the, in the curriculum development department. Uh, he had, and he was also from the UK, also an international studies major, He'd been working at Qualtrics mm -hmm. down in Provo, tech company there, and then had recently gotten hired on at Google in the sales division in um, uh, in Michigan. And he okay. reached out to me uh, on LinkedIn uh, just as I was finishing up my graduate degree and saying, hey, have you ever considered coming to Google? You know, really? I think it would be a great fit. And this had never, ever crossed my mind, working yeah. for a for-profit corporation and uh, a tech company. What? Yeah. It wasn't even on my radar at all. Yeah. And he said, you know, if you're interested, I'll, I'll give you a referral. Yeah. So I looked into it and I thought, hey, you know what? That's a kind of a cool mission purpose that Google has to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful to everyone. I was like, yeah. I like that idea. Um, and at the time, you know, don't be evil was a part of their kind of <laughs> yeah. their, their lingo. And, and I thought, yeah, I, I can vibe with that. And I looked into their research programs, their education programs, their philanthropy programs, and I thought, hey, yeah, I, c I can work for this company. Because mission has always been very important to me. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, I applied for the role that was in uh, research, the research division, uh, basically as an operations specialist embedded with the computer science researchers. And, uh, well, six interviews later, or six rounds of interviews later, uh, I got the job. Holy cow, <laughs> so that's... So you just happened to get a job at Google, almost. Yeah, yeah, through, through a friend from LinkedIn that, yeah. that was aware of me and and knew of my... So so I say, everyone, some you're always telling a story right. about yourself. Yeah. You're always portraying something. Yeah. And you need to treat everybody you meet with, with respect and, and as a human being because you just never know. Uh, well, because they deserve that, first of all, for the most yeah. part. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 
but you just also never know who's going to be your boss, who's going to work alongside, who's going to give you your next big break. Yeah. And um, yeah, this was somebody that we didn't really have a, a, a thorough relationship with, but he thought, hey, I, I trust this guy. And I yeah. I want him to be part of the company that I work for. And that's how that happened. That's awesome. So we moved out to the Bay Area. So we went from right. the, the East Coast to the West Coast. Yeah. Stayed there for the next few years. Holy cow. And what was, okay, what was the experience of working like Google like? Wow. Well, I have never worked with a more competent group of people in my life. Yeah. And Yale was very competent. Yeah. Um, but there's a high, even higher level of conscientiousness at Google than there was at, at, at graduate school at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just exciting. You never had to ask anybody to do the to, to, to do do a job twice. Yeah. Um, everyone just kind of, and you can afford to be discriminatory in your hiring practices in the sense that you can have a very high bar when you have a lot of money to give employees and uh, you know limited number of spots. Yeah. And uh, you know you it's, it's just an exciting place to be. So so that, um, they can let in who they want and keep out who they don't want. And, and what they end up doing is letting in people that are highly conscientious, very driven, very accomplished, uh, really have a sense of higher mission and purpose. Yeah. And when you're in the room with that kind of, uh, with those kinds of colleagues, yeah, you really can do incredible things. And, um, and so I don't think I'll ever be in a place like that again, where that level of productivity uh, made itself manifest every day. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I miss that now. I really, really do miss that. Yeah. It's hard to find, find people that you can um, uh, just get stuff done, which is, you know, when you turn up for work. That's you know, what you're. You want to get stuff done. Yeah, yeah that's what you're there to do, <laughs> that's right. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's an important sense of purpose and meaning uh, on top of just whatever the broader purpose mission of the institution is right so, yeah so that felt really good and um yeah being in the bay area it was like an endless summer yeah um, very open-minded kind of place like so, you know we're at the cutting edge of the state of the, the state of our state of the art technologies especially in the research and ai division yeah and so i was just learning tons by uh, via osmosis about the computer science. just because you're around it every around day it. Right. yeah right in there yeah and so um that part of my brain that I hadn't really cultivated so much at college because I, I, on the liberal arts track, um, just really started to build itself out a little bit more rigorously. Mm-hmm. And uh, it felt great to be a part of contributing to that effort every day in a, in, in a very meaningful way. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so yeah. why do you think why do you think they hired you after six rounds of interviews? Mm. Why do you think they wound up saying, yeah, we'll take Tim? Well... Um, in the, I think in the original one of the original founding documents of Google, uh, Larry Page, who you know who who was responsible for the PageRank algorithm that made Google what it is, yeah, said that Google is not an unco- is not a conventional company and never intends to become one. Mm-hmm. And you know, talk about everything about my life has been unconventional. Yeah, I think that so so that I, I've been on the hiring side of Google as well. Yeah, and there's. Uh, um, this in this called googliness that we try to hire for yeah does a person have this googliness and yeah you know, there's lots of internal discussions about what is googliness uh, there's lots of different things but it's it's, Surely, a, it's yeah. being conscientious it's being competent it's being caring and 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 uh just invested in in things that are broader than the individual and and you know wanting to do big things and 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 work towards that and that was part of it um just being kind of unique and representing the the uh, the possibilities of humanity. That's what right. part of being googly, googly is about. And you know, so to uh, I've, I've got an interesting uh, ethnic and national kind of citizenship story. Yeah. Um, which which uh, which forces you. You know, anyone that's lived in, across three continents and six different countries for significant periods of time, you know, you're forced to look at the world in a different way, in an unconventional but productive way. Yeah. Um, you know, you cut a lot of the biases out of life just by being exposed to that. And that's important when you're designing for 7 billion people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> most companies and most institutions are only trying to serve a, a, a limited populace. Yeah. But something like the internet, you have to try and create for everybody. Find something that works yeah. for everyone. And so, so obviously that was probably very um, important for them. I had a very strong academic background, which is just uh, important for letting people know that you can think, that you, yeah. know, you can read, you can write, you can communicate, 
and get the job done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, it, it's a confluence of those different factors, really. Some things in your control and some things that just you That's won right. the lottery and happened to be and, from this and, ethnic background. And exactly, that yeah, and you have to be led you on this path, that. yeah. And, and, and use it to your advantage. I mean, that's the, thing. the world is not a level playing field. Yeah. Never can, you know, can be. Yeah. And so we need to use what we've got. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for some people that turns out to have nice titles and um, sexy institutional names like Google or yeah. Yale or the Air Force or whatever. But, you know, for some of us, that might be uh, being an auto mechanic, mechanic in your hometown and being the best damn auto mechanic that there is in yeah. the world. I yeah. used to tip my auto mechanic when I was living in the Bay Area. He was from Vietnam. He was a, 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 a Vietnamese Catholic immigrant. Um, and uh, he... He had a, just a small little shop in Sunnyvale, California, and specialized in Japanese cars. And I've got a, a Honda and a, and a Toyota. And, I, and and he was the kind of mechanic that would quote you a price and, and a time, but he'd get it done under budget and quicker than, yeah. than he quoted. And it's like, who does that? What kind of mechanic does that? Yeah. There'd be times where I'd drop by, you know, the little check engine light's gone on or something's not working properly. You just look around, you know, 20 minutes later, it's all fixed up and he doesn't charge me for it. I was like, this is insane. This yeah. guy is just a magician around the car. Yeah. And uh, and so I never let him do work on my car without tipping him. Yeah. Because he was so good and I wanted to keep that relationship. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, somebody found what they can do in the world and they were the best at it. Yeah. And and, and so, yeah, you use what you've got. What is what is your what are your talents? Yeah. And, and what do you have to give to the world? And, uh, you know. I say it's 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 not the same story for everybody. So we just got to find out what our story is and kind of be be the masters of curating that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, don't compare ourselves to other people and say, oh, well they did this and well, I don't yeah. have that. Well, yeah. great. Well, you have your own existence, exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where happiness and meaning comes from is is understanding who you are. Yeah. Both eschatologically and you know theologically. Uh, I believe I'm a child of God and I believe everybody else is too. And that makes a big difference as to how you treat people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if you can recognize that, then, uh, well, you won't be down on yourself so much. Yeah. And you won't be down on other people as well. And you'll want them to do better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people like uh, a force of responsibility in their life. People like it when people say, hey, you can do better. Yeah. And if you can show them how to do better, then even better. Yeah, exactly. And they will. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So catching up to catching up to the present Mm -hmm. and uh, kind of starting to wrap up here. Why why did you leave Google mm-hmm. to, and end up working at BYU Idaho? Again. Again. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of, there's probably a dozen different factors and each one of them by themselves uh would have tipped the scales um fairly significantly. The one that does seem to be so I had all, always wanted to come back to BYU Idaho um to either join the administration or teach. Right. Um, and, and initially was thinking kind of a 20 year sojourn in either government or the corporate world before coming back. So because I noticed that um, some of the best professors on campus were those that had not just gone the academic route, but got, got out. And they went somewhere else, that, did something right, and, and then they came back. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and uh, there's a lot of credibility and legitimacy to that. So, I, you know, that was kind of the path that I, I took. But, you know, five years ended up being sufficient, it seemed. Yeah. Um, to come back more than anything it was my eldest son was diagnosed with autism when he Mm -hmm. was two years old while we were out in the bay area and uh just a few months later we had our second son um and and you know we just we were out there in the bay area by ourselves my wife was working i was working uh two kids uh under the age of three one with special needs and we're like okay how are we going to manage life because this is tiring (laughs) yeah yeah and um my parents live here in rexburg idaho and we had actually already purchased a home here a f- few years prior. Right. Um, and so we already had it, you know, as an investment property and, and maybe as something to come back to. But since we already had that in place and um, and it was a very difficult dis- decision because things were going very well for me at work at Google. I was offered um, a couple of really nice positions around the Alphabet companies, mm-hmm. um, chief of staff at Google X or within one of their divisions was, was a very appealing opportunity. And, yeah. But, you know, as I say, you never felt right to take that. And, and lo and behold, you know, um, my eldest son ended up having, uh, 
uh, condition that needed a lot of time and attention. And so we were thinking, how do we, how do we uh, adjust gears for the next few years? Because we're going to be in this, um, you know, attending to him much more so than we would if he didn't have any, uh, you know, didn't have his diagnosis. So, um, yeah, it, it, we figured that coming back to the academic environment might be a little bit more sustainable for the long term, having the help from grandparents next door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and for me, you know, being able to kind of... Uh, enter into the um, industry that I really wanted to be in and the institution that I really wanted to be in at BYU-Idaho in yeah. education, which is where I, f I, I have always felt my vocation, my, my spiritual and vocational calling is to be here. Yeah. And so um, to expedite that just seemed like uh, the, the stars were aligning and, and we were being kind of pushed in this direction. So uh, that's the decision we made. And, you know, it's been a bit of a, a, a gnarly uh, start kind of transitioning to that. You know, the mm -hmm. first few months were pretty difficult for, for my son and, and, and family readjusting to life here and doing renovations around the house and, yeah. uh, you know, settling into a new role in career and academic advising as well as being asked to teach. Yeah, which a, yeah. yeah, 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 which we as as a class we all we all could tell sometimes that you I know just tired. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you were busy. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, it makes a big difference, uh, you know, teaching as an adjunct and, and getting paid pennies mm -hmm. compared to teaching full time as a faculty and, and and getting compensated much better. Yeah, and having, or, and having the time and charge and responsibility. Yeah, uh, over students in a much more direct way, and I was like, well, that that would be better. And, uh, you know, originally I, I was not really thinking of leaving, of, of um, my intention was not to become a full-time faculty, but over the course of this semester, I've just had really fantastic experiences. Um, it seems a lot of the students have, have really enjoyed themselves and grown as a result. Mm -hmm. I've had some very positive feedback there and from other colleagues as well. And, um, and so that's now become an explicit goal of mine is to try and, uh, become a full-time faculty and I would do that in almost any department yeah um, you know I have, a, I have a broad interdisciplinary background and uh, the skills of teaching specifically are much more important than the content knowledge skills mm -hmm. and and I think that's something that I've been blessed to have somewhat innately but at the same time you know my knowledge level is such that I can uh, do a pretty good job of teaching almost any subject <laughs> yeah yeah. Maybe outside of differential equations and multivariable calculus, but <laughs> yeah, there might be a few things that you'd need more training on. Right, but but but, but um, and certainly in the liberal arts, um, yeah, I feel very comfortable there. Yeah, and and able to uh, deliver content in a good good way, and you know, and and, and more than anything, just uh, help students um, grapple with the the most important ideas that they'll uh, ever really be thinking of in about existentialism life and and how to live a good life <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah those are huge huge things yeah so um wrapping up one last question mm -hmm. uh when you're 85 mm. what do you what do you want to look back at and say that you've done mm -hmm. uh say that you've seen mm -hmm. and uh what would make you feel most accomplished and satisfied with your life well unequivocally is uh, a good family relationships all around mm -hmm. you know that, that my, my parents died well, that my siblings lived well, yeah. you know, that, that I supported them when they needed them, that my children had a, a happy and a meaningful life and uh, one that was oriented towards the highest good and to God. Um, so, you know, I, I, I love that quote attributed to, to, to the President David O. McKay that no other success can compensate for failure in the home. I truly believe that and I've seen that in my own life already. So um, that's number one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Then outside of that, I think, you know, the next thing really is my vocational calling here in higher education in the church educational system is just being able to have uh, touched as many lives for good as possible, um, whether it be through service or education or administrative practices that have uh, enabled more people to have better quality and access to education because mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's education that enables our minds to self-actualize. And, and I really do believe for us to have a, a stronger relationship with the divine. And so it's a spiritual thing for me as, as in addition to one of just self-reliance and, and um, prosperity. So there are the two biggest things, I think. Um, and then 
you know, if I ever do live in a, a geographic community long enough to make it a community, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then hopefully I'll just be remembered for being uh, a contributor, you know, rather yeah. than just a populator. Yeah. And um, that's that's really where my goals are. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of it. But that's the, awesome. The, the main point is just uh, staying true to oneself and and to God and uh, and always giving credit to the divine for the good that comes my way because it's not my doing I've, I've been extremely blessed but you know with great power or great opportunity comes great responsibility and that's that's where i find myself is trying to figure out what is my responsibility and uh, how should i be uh, blessing others with the, the the time the talents that the lord has given me that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing and thank you for being on My Wax Museum. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. And thank you for listening. I'd still do the show whether or not I had listeners, but it's something I love sharing with people. I started this project at the beginning of 2018 because I realized how poor of a listener I was. I needed a creative way and a simple way f- to force me to sit down and listen to other people. While doing this project, My Wax Museum, I have come to appreciate people so much more and come to realize how many interesting things everyone has to share and how interesting the lives of the people around us really are. That's why I encourage everyone on each episode to take five minutes out of their day just to listen, to ask someone about them. Get a story, get a tale. Maybe you'll come to appreciate them a little bit more. In fact, I can almost guarantee it. I hope that through listening, this has helped your life. And I hope that as we go into the new year, we can all strive to listen to each other a little bit better and with a little bit more love. We'll be back with season three in February. But in the meantime, if you'd like to continue listening to some of the work I'm doing, you can go and check out Dear Subjects, which is available anywhere you're listening to podcasts these days. Here's a bit of an intro to it. Dear Subjects, One week ago we were declared a sovereign nation, free from Norward, free to choose, free to grow. This nation is a simulation. You, the listeners, are the citizens. I am your news anchor, Alex Williams, joining you on this journey as we discover the culture, politics, economics, society, history, and people of this new nation. Join us as we discover what it means to be, well, whatever we're going to call ourselves. This national broadcast has been brought to you by The Sovereignty We Enjoy. Without Norward sending us that nasty breakup letter, well, we wouldn't be a national broadcast. We'd just be some people talking about stuff in the colony. Thanks again for listening to My Wax Museum. We'll be back in February, and in the meantime, here's a little outro music from my friend and former guest, Tanner Larson. (laughs) 